It's a great thrill that the very first guest on stages is Tony Lamont. The term showbiz royalty is often bandied about to describe performers of moderate success or longevity in the business. But Tony Lamond is the real thing. She's experienced great success across a range of mediums in a career that has spanned eight decades. She is the daughter of vaudevillians Joe Lawman and Stella Lamond, the sister of songstress Helen Reddy, and the mother of actor Tony Shelburne. Tony is a woman of firsts. In a time when overseas stars were brought to Australia to lead local productions of Broadway musicals, Tony was first to be given the opportunity to lead an Australian cast in The Pajama Game. With husband Frank Sheldon, she was the opening night act on GTV9 as Australian television was finding its feet. She went on to be the first woman to host a Tonight Show when filling in for the legendary Graham Kennedy. How great that she competes another first today, our very first guest on Stages. Uh, well, Tony Lamond, you're, you're a woman of firsts, and I'm going to talk about several of those firsts well, today. Well, I'm an Aries, you see. <laughs> so, We're the pioneer signs, so, and I'm typical. I'm a typical Aries. Yes, but but um, uh, one first I want to begin with is that you and your husband, Frank, were the opening night act on Australian television. So, no, w- no, no, it was the opening night of GTV9. Oh, right. In 1957. Were they not the first station? Did, did no, not, no, no. Right? It was in Parliament for for quite a lot of the 50s. A television was happening overseas, and when Frank and I were in were in the Philippines in 1953, 54, television was there, and we didn't have it in Australia. But Parliament was arguing back and forth of when we'd get it and everything. And then they got the Olympic Games in Melbourne in 1956 and they rushed it through for the Olympic Games because they couldn't have the uh, the worldwide Olympic Games and not have it televised. So the only people who had studios were the ABC and a lot of the... um, they were building the studios, Channel 7, and Sydney had TCN 9. Sydney had... But Melbourne didn't have um, a a studio, but they bought uh, an old piano factory in Bendigo Street, Richmond, and in 1957 it was due to be opened and Sir Dallas Brooks, the... um, the Premier, was it? Governor. The, 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 the Governor yeah. of Victoria uh, drove in to the back with the, in the Rolls Royce and he made a speech. He really, really talked like that. And I now officially declare GTV9 open. And, and Terry Deer was the compere. And he said, "Okay, now and on with the show. And it was a variety show, followed it. And Frank and I were the opening act. And I didn't know till 50 50 years later, it made me the first woman on Victorian television because they were all... During the Olympic Games in 1956, um, they were out... um, uh, doing 
you know, out at the games. Yes, and have then live, live broadcasts or live uh, crosses. Right, mm. and then they'd go up to the where the antenna was, to the little studio, and they'd do the news and the, and the weather and maybe play uh, a Hopalong Cassidy um, film or something, and then the station would close down for the night. So at 1957, it, it, it opened, but Channel 9, GTV 9, hadn't opened because it didn't have a studio, and that, that was that opening night. But I believe you didn't, almost didn't make it. We, we, <laughs> we had a gig um, 25 minutes away um, in uh, Melbourne, uh, opposite... Um, Flinders Street, Spencer Street Station, there was the Savoy Plaza Hotel, and Frank and I were doing the um, were doing the floor show, and um, we rehearsed in the afternoon at GTV Nine. It was twenty minutes away down Bridge Road and out to out to Richmond, crossed the Yarra and went to the studio, and we rehearsed in the afternoon, and we thought that. The, the show opened at eight thirty, but we were rehearsing, and um, we we did the band call and the camera call and everything. And Norm Spencer said, "All right, everybody, back at seven thirty for an eight o'clock start." And we went, "Oh, wait a minute! Isn't it eight thirty start?" Because we came off our floor show at the Savoy Plaza at seven thirty. And uh, no, it was, we went, oh God, what are we going to do? So we're in the car and I'm putting makeup on in the car and well, we'll cut this and we'll cut that. And when we walked into the, um, when we walked into the Savoy Plaza, the, the guy that had put us in the show was there and he must have been psychic because he said, if you cut anything tonight, you're fired. Oh. Well, we couldn't afford to be fired, so we we got on, and it was the fastest we'd ever done the act. We gabbled the dialogue because we only didn't sing; we just only didn't sing and dance. We did jokes and things together, old jokes we pinched from comics and things, and so doubled up all the tempos. Flung ourselves into the into the um, uh, the car and went down Bridge Road and I I think we got every stoplight light all the way down and we were pulled up about ten to eight when when we were due to open and Terry Deers out saying come on no oh no it was it was Colin Bednall the the the, the general manager of the channel waiting come come on come on come on you're on and Frank said well I've got to park the car he said no leave it so Frank left the engine running and the headlights on and we raced in and got behind the curtain we, we started the number back to back I won't dance was the was the number we were doing and back to back and um Sir Dallas Brooks was saying, and I now officially declare GTV9 officially open. <laughs> there was applause, and Terry Deer said, 
All right, everybody, on with the show. And here they are, Tony Lamond and Frank Sheldon, and the curtains open, and we did the number, and Frank went out and... And, and parked the car and turned the headlights off because we had another number to do. Oh, later on. <laughs> was it a daunting experience leaping into a, a new medium that was going to oh, reach yes. thousands more audience? Yes. Hundreds, tens of thousands more audience luckily, than you would in the theatre. Luckily, I'd done some in Sydney before that, um, but I was still um, performing to the grand circle I wasn't used to just performing to that little yellow light it wasn't a, until a couple of years later that I that I learned to that gee you, you're you're performing to one person and that's when I molded my my performance but but I, I was still doing it but it, it seemed really weird that there wasn't an audience there there was this little light and then this little light over there and you know so it would have been it would have been a steep learning curve for a lot of those performers who came out of radio oh, and theater and all that sort of thing to uh, on the spot learning uh, of, absolutely uh, because there were no there were no schools at that time yes there were no Nobody to teach you. So you become a regular fixture on Australian TV in variety, etc., which leads to another first. You were the very first woman in the world to host a Tonight Show. Now that happened. This is how luck. I had wanted to go overseas. I had always wanted to go overseas, and um, we um, had had. Uh, I had married Frank, and I'd had. Tony. Tony was about two years old. We, we, we decided in 1960, we, and, and England was the place to go then. It wasn't Broadway. Broadway was, oh no, that's movies. That's, just... that's, that's fantasy land. No, the West End of England. It was within reach, I guess. London, pardon? It was within reach and other was Australians had conquered it. Exactly. Yeah. So we were going to go in 1960. Um, we booked to go on um, a ship. And Norm Spencer, the um, director of In Melbourne Tonight, which by then Graham Kennedy, they discovered this young record boy from 3UZ in Melbourne, and they'd copied... The Tonight Shows from the one that was playing in New York, and um, where they sat, the guy sat at a desk and compared and interviewed world stars. Right, Jack Parr and Jack John, Parr. Johnny Carson. Johnny and, Carson yeah. was later, but it was Jack Parr at the yeah. time. By the by, the time 1960, when we were going, Graham Kennedy got got the show in 1957 and he by 1960 he was exhausted with the five nights a week and uh, he was away on holidays and um, they were having guest compeers and um, Norm Spencer out of the blue said to me I'm going to give you a going away present and I said what he said um I'm going to give you um, a night comparing IMT. And I, I just, my mouth dropped open. 
I mean, where, where the heck did that come from? And it was, I was sitting behind the desk and, and comping, but I was doing comedy sketches and Frank and I were doing our, our act and then we went to England and we stayed a year. We came back because our visas ran out and nothing big was happening. We'd, we'd worked down at um, Bournemouth and we'd done a couple of nightclub things but nothing that we could get a, a work visa to keep us. So we came back and we were put under contract. About a year and a half later, um, Graham decided once and for all he wasn't going to do five nights a week. It was just too much and he wanted to perform. He, he didn't just want to do the stuff. And um, so they decided to give me the Monday night and the new young guy that was working with Graham, Bert Newton, got the Thursday night because I'd been successful on them. And we didn't realise until later that, because I didn't think about it. I mean, you, you don't think when you get those things about who else is doing the Tonight Show in the world? You don't think of those things. And guess who the next person was? My sister, Helen Reddy. Really? Got it. It, by this time it was... It, Johnny Carson? Or? It was, and it was 1972 and she, she had a hit record. And Joan Rivers was the next one that got doing it. But Helen got it after me. We didn't realise till we looked back on those. And I got it for a year. And um, by this time, the producer, Tom Miller, um, was very aware of Frank's ideas for numbers and, 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 and comedy sketches. And, and with my show, we were doing theme nights. We had the first all-female um, IMT and I was able to get my mother Stella on to work with my mum, yes, and and different things like that. Something I didn't know until... Until after that the it, fact. That I, after the fact. Yeah, it the dawned. Uh, with these interviews, uh, I like to um, occasionally do six degrees of separation because there are performers who have influenced the industry and entertainment who we no longer have access to, and Graham Kennedy is one of them. You knew him very well. Yes, I did. I knew him from 3UZ when I used to do interviews on the radio. Max and Stella, my stepfather and my mother, were radio stars, and um, they were a comedy team, the nitwits of the network. Oh, this is Max and Stella. Bring on the band where the nitwits of radio land. Hello, hello, Stella. Hello, Maxie. And into the thing. But I used to do interviews over at 3UZ and um, to, to plug whatever show I was doing. And I was, I was working at a place called the Plaza Northcote, which was a suburban variety house, a, a, a change of program every two weeks. And, oh, what a learning curve that was, because I not only was the soubrette, 
And for anybody who doesn't know what a soubrette is, she comes on, sings the number in front of the in front of the the lineup of girls, and then steps back and dances the routine with them. Um, I also worked with the comics, uh, which fitted me for later going on to the Tivoli, which but then was my highest goal. The Tivoli being the vaudeville house um, it was a circuit in Australia and um, it's they'd bring out overseas stars and, and local comics and my mother and father had been stars at the Tivoli so that that was that was Nirvana you know and um, um, with, with Kennedy did, he wanted to be I mean he went on to make several films but I believe you also wanted to be a musical theatre performer. Yes. You had a great he fascination. To, yeah, when we got Pajama Game, I fixed it for him to come and stand on the side of the stage and watch the performances. He wanted like mad to be performing, but at the radio station he was a record boy, a record boy being somebody who brought the records in for whoever... The disc jockey. Was the disc jockey, which we didn't call them that those right, the days. The radio announcer. The radio announcer. <laughs> um, and um, he'd bring them in. His career started with this guy called Cliff Nichols. While Graham would come in quietly to put the records down, Nicky, Cliff Nichols, would talk to him while he was on air. Oh, hello, and... And Graham started talking back to him, and that's how that started. That became a very funny duo. R- yes, and then then he got a job. Uh, they said, "Oh yeah, well, people rang up and said, you know, oh they're funny. Can we hear more of them?" And he, that's he came from there. There are many more interviews in the Stages Archive where we talk to directors, designers and drag performers. Actor-producer Trevor Ashley considers the doubt that has sometimes niggled at him and confesses to what it is that he really craves. I, I have doubted myself a few times, but not often. I think I doubt respect. That's the thing I doubt. I sometimes feel like I'm an industry joke. Really? Yes. What, what, what makes you think that? Because I'm so ridiculous and because I do drag and because it's not legit and it's not, you know, I don't know, that's how I feel and yet I've been told by many people that that's absolutely not true. But I think that's, that's the nagging fear. Patricia Lamont Lawman, you share a birthday with the Harbour Bridge. Ten days after the the Harbour Bridge opened, Tony, uh, Patricia Lamond Lawman was born. Um, and yeah. where did Tony come from? I don't know. Known as Tony. I, and it was was not a common name, T-O-N-I. Antoinette was, but, but I was never called Antoinette. People would often say, you know, short for Antoinette, no, it's T-O-N-I. Oh, Okay. Um, so who? So that was a nickname from no, from your mum or mum mum and mum and dad called me Tony, and I I don't know because not long after I was parked with a 
a nanny and they went on tour, you know, because they had to. It was the depression. Yes. It was the depression and they didn't work together. Joe Lawman was was um, a very, very funny comic and um, he fell in love with the third gorgeous chorus girl from the left and it ended in divorce. But the third girl, gorgeous chorus girl in the left, Joy Lawman, became, years later, became my manager and agent. She outlasted Stella and Joe and Max, and I finished up her carer. She made it to 90s, yeah. Wow. And and Joy was was booking me into different places and things, so that was one of those weird things that Joy and I got on terribly well. But it was when I met Frank and we were getting married, I said, we are not working separately. We've got to put together a double act because that was the end of my mother and father's marriage. When uh, Stella met uh, another another comedian after she'd divorced Joe Lawman, she met this young guy called Max Reddy. And um, I had a fam- the Reddy family. I had a family for the first time in my life. And um, he said, now, I'm not going to... Um, Tony Lawman, I'm not going to uh, raise a child with another man's name. She has to take my name. So I was Tony Reddy uh, for a few years, and I hated the name, hated it. Two and a half years later, I was seven when they got married, and um, two and a half years later, they had a little girl called Helen. When I started singing at age 10, professionally, because they were doing a show at the Princess Theatre on Saturday and Sunday nights, Um, there were two different variety shows, and they got me, they, uh, they started to know I could sing. And um, uh, Tony Reddy, I was <laughs> not happy with that. And my middle name was my mother's single name, Lamond, which was actually Scottish. It was Lamond. I said, look, could I be Tony Lamond? Um, and Max's face darkened. He said, oh, all right, but... When Helen grows up, she'll take my name and she'll do something with it. Did she ever? She made it world famous. But he didn't live to To see see it. Uh. No, she was on the cusp of um, things and and he died. It was very sad. They they didn't live to see Helen's great fame. So in those early days of, of vaudeville and review, uh, I'm talking about 1955, you were travelling with your husband and son, Frank and Tony, throughout Tasmania and northern Queensland with a show titled The Follies. This was Max and Stella's Their show, yeah. Show. Um, what, what did such a tour consist of? What was, what was a day in the life of a, a tour like that? day in the life of the tour, well, first of all, there was the show train. The Royal Easter Show is um, a big, was a big, this is in the days before television, of course. The town would fill in 
Melbourne and Sydney when the Royal Easter Show was on. And um, people would come from the outback, of course, to show their cows or their cabbages or whatever. (laughs) And then they would go, there would be special entertainment would be put on. And in, in northern Queensland, it was called the Exhibition or the Ecker. The show, that's when the towns, all those towns right up to Cairns and beyond would fill only during showtime. Um, so that's when they had shows and Sawley's had uh, a tent show, but we played the theatres. Um, Max got the, the theatres to play and um, the show train, they would put the cars of the people. You'd, you'd put your car on the, on the end of the show train and you'd sleep overnight on the show train. And um, in some places we, we camped out by, on, on a siding with, um, with the train. And some, in some um, uh, hotels, um, we could stay, but because we, we only had a small car and Tony was a baby, Tony was about 12 months old, and because we didn't, couldn't take the um, bassinet with us, it was too big to fit in the car, we used to pull out, pull out the bottom drawer in the <laughs> in the chest of drawers in the hotel room, and that was Tony the baby's cot. Years later, when I was on tour with Tony in a show he'd written for both of us, um, I was telling um, a young female reporter from Northern Queensland this story and her face darkened and she hurriedly finished up the finished up the interview and left and I said what's the matter with her and Tony said mother you mustn't tell that story again I said why he said she thought you then pushed the drawer in <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I said, I didn't think of that. So that was get on the show train, um, and and it it had like ninth. Um, it had to go onto the sidings for every other train that was on the thing. So you were in the train for days, but it was it was work. Was it challenging travelling with family? I mean. I- I know what it could be like when you're on holidays with family, but when you're working with them 24-7. Pretty pretty much, yes. Yes, I don't don't remember as such, but it it probably was. So um, performing seems firmly implanted in your DNA. It it seemed that that was your destiny. Yes. Uh, Were there any other occupations you considered when you were growing up or, or that was it? That, that was, was the business. It. That's all I really wanted to do. I was uh, when I was uh, uh, when I before I got into performing, um, 
I got I Auntie Auntie Nell Aunt Helen Reddy Senior got me uh, told me about um, there was an ad for Usherettes in the in the movie theatres and um, those were the days when the the theatre seats were were numbered and you were ushered to your seat um, by an usher or an usherette um, and um, it was all very glamorous so I got um, a job in Melbourne at the Metro Theatre on opening night I hadn't um, I hadn't learned about the seats. I was I was immediately put on, and um, it was we we were beautifully gowned and and flowers in the hair and and the torch and I acted the part of an usherette. I I imagined what it would be like and and I stopped and said, leave two and take the next two. Thank you gave them their tickets thank you enjoy the show <laughs> and then yes so it wasn't until just before the lights went down that I realized something I hadn't noticed before the um the 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 the, 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 the on the right side there was from one to fifteen and then on this side of the aisle, 16 through to 32, whatever. And um, I hadn't noticed that um, the rows went double A, double B, double C, double D, double E, double F, A, B, C, <laughs> almost everybody in the stalls was in the wrong seat. So all through the um, Gaumont British News, <laughs> the uh, the previews of coming attractions and different, I'm in the mode. So could I see your ticket, please? I'm terribly sorry you're in the wrong seat. And there's all the, all the bodies bobbing up and down, changing. <laughs> It's a wonder I didn't get fired, but I didn't. I stayed there for two and a half years and finished up Dead Girl. Don't forget, there are many more interviews available from The Stages podcast, including this one from Stuart Green, theatre historian and bar manager at many of our live theatre venues and cinemas. Stuart has worked in theatres for the past 40 years and has a myriad of tales about the folk, who have adorned the stages and behind the scenes anymore? Mm. And you couldn't. And even the last years of the match, uh, the dancers, the people like we used to get. We, we had no green room at the Majesties. You remember the downstairs yep. bar? That yep. was that the was green the room gathering place. So when you had a musical in like Forty Second Street, you'd have forty in the cast. You'd have sixty week backstage, thirty piece in the orchestra, thirty piece orchestra, uh, and they'd all be out the bar afterwards. So we'd be talking theatre all night. It was like going out every night. It wasn't like working. Working at Her Majesty's for 27 years was like going out every night for 27 years, um, and the same with the Royal. But the Royal didn't have the bar; the bar wasn't open afterwards, so it was like party time, and you could talk theatre all night to anyone. Yeah, and they stayed there. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. 
Um, back to the many firsts which you've yeah. done. Um, you were the uh, the first woman to lead an entirely Australian cast of an American musical in Australia with the Pajama Gang. That was amazing. During World War Two, um, before World War Two, the 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 upper theatre operator and Gilbert and Sullivan and so forth at Her Majesty's and the Theatre Royal, which was different to the vaudeville down for working man down at the TIV, book shows. Um, when Japan attacked Australia, the ships that had been used to bring out the scripts from overseas were used to fight the Japanese and the younger people won't realise that Japan brought the war to Australia when they bombed Darwin and they bombed Sydney Harbour um, down Elizabeth Bay. It was all shattered and everything. And um, so no scripts were coming out. So they were doing... um, operettas and so forth and dramas and so forth uh, they were doing repeats and Gladys Moncrief was the was the big star I can't think of the the male stars Don Nickel was a, was the comic and so forth and so on right up until 1945 then just after the the war the musicals changed uh, they were modernised and things like Oklahoma, Annie Get Your Gun, Carousel were written. The only problem was no new stars had been made at Her Majesty's and so forth. They were they were still Gladys Moncrief and so who was getting older and she wasn't right for these shows. So they decided... And and, and, and and it was twice the ticket price as going to the vaudeville show, three times the ticket price. So they decided to import the leads. Now, once or twice they brought out a well-known name, but then they found out if they brought out the third understudy from the third national tour, as long as they had an American accent or from the West End English accent... Who knew in Australia? And this went on until 1957, um, the week after Channel 9, GTV 9, opened. Dame Margot Fontaine, the famous English ballerina, was coming out to do a month each at the Theatre Royal in Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide. She was doing a one-woman show talking about her career. And uh, she she danced with all the famous Rudolf Nureyev and all the, you know, she was uh, an absolute star of the, of the ballet. She had to cancel and that left three theatres dark, as we called it. Now, a, th- a dark theatre for... Um, any amount of time means there's the backstage staff and the box office staff all still have to be paid. They might as well have stood over a drain and torn up pound notes and thrown them down, you know, and to have them both a month, the three of them, for one month was, oh, God. Well, they'd bought two new shows. They were different 
types of shows to Carousel and, and Oklahoma. One was called The Pajama Game, about a pajama factory in in mid-America and it was a small type and modern modern type show and Damn Yankees was the was the other one written by the same people I think it was yeah, yeah. yes Adrian Ross anyway um, it is alleged Sir Frank Tate said you know if we put an Australian cast into this pajama game show for one month in each of the things. We couldn't lose too much money, could we? And it's alleged, no, not too much, no. Okay, well, we'll try it. So that's how they decided to go with an Australian cast. So it wasn't any intelligent planning. It was just a, a happy accident that all these Australians this were cast in the first musical. This is you how wow. lucky I am. Yeah. Anyway, Frank said... No, so it's just Frank Tate ran J.C. Williamson's, the, right. the producers, yes. Frank, my husband, said... Um, oh, and, 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 our, and our agent got an audition for us... Um, for J.C. Williamson's, which was, wow, wow, because Tivoli had been the, the thing, you know. And uh, Frank said, uh, when I got the part, Frank said, I'll, um, I'll understudy somebody. And um, I said, okay. The guy that was producing it said to Frank, you dance, don't you? And Frank said, yeah, I am a dancer. And he said, well, there's the steam heat number. What's the steam heat number? Well, it's this number that, and this this new choreographer Bob Fossey has has done. And um, Frank said, "Oh, okay. Well, of course, it 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 stopped the show every night. It was, you know, and Bob Fossey had became became a huge huge star after that." And um, I got the part of Babe Williams. Um, I could do the American accent and I'd had enough experience that I, I could work on stage. And the rest of the cast was terrific, except there was one um, middle-aged woman who played the part of a middle-aged woman. and it was she was Ma- Mabel's secretary. Mabel. Yes. She wasn't working out. And there was... And I forget the show that was playing at Her Majesty's at the time, uh, but uh, our American... They brought out an American director um, who um, had done it in America, and he he said, I know just the girl. There was a 19-year-old girl um, in in the show playing at the Magic... Can Can. Was it Can Can? Yes. Thank you. And Jill Perryman. And... JCW said, but she's only 19. And he said, there's makeup and she can act. And it was like, it, oh, oh, all right. Yeah. And like I hadn't heard anything like that. And that was the beginning of Jill Perryman's career. Anyway, we opened and the public discovered us. They didn't give us any, three months we were going to play, they didn't give us any help. But the public discovered us and we finished up playing two and a half years. And we thought that the very next show, but it took several years, um, and Nancy Hayes was the next was the next one, and it was about eight years later 
that they went with an Australian and it, and Jill Perryman got Fun, another show. Funny Girl. and Funny Girl, yes, right. And, and Nance did Sweet Charity. Nancy did Sweet Charity. A woman like Betty Pounder. Pounder was yes. the one that, that she used to go in and uh, she helped us with our careers. In the pyjama game, they wouldn't let her get backstage and learn things. She had to sit and watch the show and learn the routines. They wouldn't help her because it would stop um, an American being sent out and being paid. Yeah. So they made Pounder sit in the audience. Because, of course, uh, JCW sent her to America yeah. to watch the shows to that were being brought out to Australia. Bring it, bring it back, yeah. She was brilliant. What an extraordinary talent to oh, she, she to watch was. a show and then come and restage she was. it. Can we talk about your experience with Gypsy? Because I don't think you were originally cast, were you? It was, no. it was the great Gloria, Gloria Dawn, who unfortunately fell ill during the run. She fell ill, and I was in hospital having a minor operation when the call came through from Joy, my stepmother, the third gorgeous chorus girl from the left. She said, J.C. Williamson wants you to take over from Gloria Dawn while she's in hospital. Can you do it? And I was in Sydney... And I had to get to Melbourne. And uh, I said, tell them yes. I was in the hospital bed. Mama Rose. The, I it's, mean, the, it's the King Lear of um, <laughs> performances for a leading How, lady, isn't what it? What a good musical? way to yeah. put it. I said, tell them yes. Now, I had to get on the train, and you could put your car on the train at that time. Um, I got on the on the train in Sydney, and went to Melbourne and um, I was going to be on the following week. I was going to watch it for a week and I went on the Monday night and the understudy was on and, oh, it was so slow, the show. And I said to Pounder, this show won't be open next Saturday. Pounder said, well, do you think you can get on before? Now, I had learnt the first half on the train overnight in the, in the, in the sleeping bunk, um, and I said, yes, that's an Aries for you. Not, not I might or I'll try. I said, yes. Monday we did the first half. I rehearsed with the, with the uh, cast and... Um, on Tuesday, we did the second half, and I said, I'm ready to go on tomorrow. Mama's opening entrance is from the back of the stalls while the, 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 the kids are auditioning. With Uncle Jocko. And um, Mama's with a, a little dog under her arm. And she goes, smile, baby, <laughs> smile. And she's walking down the, she's walking down the aisle. And I walked up, there's there's a stairs up beside the um, orchestra pit and I tripped and fell and (laughs) nearly killed the dog in my my arm. And everybody went, oh my God, that's it. But but it was fine from then on. And um, Mike Walsh had just taken over um, Her Majesty's Theatre and he was filming it to um to 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 play the commercial in sydney and he said he wouldn't have believed it oh no no it wasn't that it was later 
when I came down later, he, th- he thought, oh, God, it was all over when, when I fell flat in my face in my opening entrance. But, but later on, um, when Ro- in Rose's turn, um, somebody um, yelled out from the, from the top circle, um, Rose is, is doing the number and she, she gets caught up with dreams and things and somebody said, It's all right, Tony, we're with you. They thought I'd forgotten the words. Don't forget to keep up with the latest guests on Stages by following us on Instagram at Stages Podcast Pete and liking us on Facebook. You can also send us an email at stagespodcastpete at gmail.com. Tell me about performing in cabaret, because that's something you've, you've done a lot. When the mask is off and it's just a piano or microphone and you, that must be a vulnerable position. Well, Or is that something you feel very at home it, in? It was. It, no, it, I, not in the beginning it wasn't. Um, and when I first went to America... Um, in 1976, I went with um, ten songs and a routine of jokes that I'd put together or pinched from comics or whatever. And it was because I met Ron Crager, American um, American young guy, who um, the day after I met him, we wrote a song together. We we absolutely merged as a merged, team. Yes. Yeah. And um, he said to me one night, um, why don't you tell uh, some of the stories you tell in the dressing room? And I said, what, what about Australia? About my career in Australia? Because, you know, I told you're in the dressing room, you're waiting while somebody else is on and you tell the stories. And um, I said, no, they're, they're Australian. They're, the Americans wouldn't get it. He said, I'm American and I get it. And I said, yes, you are, aren't you? Okay. And that was the beginning of me doing anecdotal humour for the first time ever in my life. And I thank Ron for the change in my career of tailoring my act and, you know, this is 1976. This is, you know, and into the early 80s um, where this has changed. I had never done anecdotal humour. I, I, and it was it was the beginning of um, shows about what was in the headlines and everything. Mine had all been scripted. You know, my father and my stepfather and the comics I worked with, we all worked from a script. But now it was the first time, you know, and ad-libbing. I knew how to ad-lib. I could do that. I was encouraged to ad-lib. But um, it was it was an incredible change. And it was, it was when I began to get into and enjoy doing the act. I wasn't going and singing just, and, and then I sang. I wasn't doing another, and then I sang act. I started tailoring the act and 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 Ron would rewrite, help me rewrite and put verses to things and anecdotal stories. And that's when I really began to enjoy the cabaret act. And refining and and, um, and just being the, the immaculate performer that you are with that, um, that medium. Um, 2001, leading you to the Mecca of New York and the New York Cabaret Convention. Oh, wow. Was that the first time back in America performing? 
I was out here. I had come back in 1996 and I um, sponsored Ron into Australia and uh, because we'd been working together uh, quite a few places in America and um, I wanted to continue working with him and he missed me too. And as soon as he got out here, Les Solomon, who had in his stable David Campbell um, and... Tim Draxel. Tim Draxel. He um, said to Ron... um, Tim Draxel's been invited to the um, New York Cabaret Convention and would you go over and play for him? Uh, That means I only have to get um, one um, visa for... And Ron said, oh, okay, I've just got out of here and I've got to go back. The New York Cabaret Convention had only just started. It was at Town Hall, New York, and... um, Excuse me, I have a sip of water. We've been chatting a bit. Have a bit. Um, It was um, a week long, um, and it was people from all over America, um, and um, some from uh, different parts of... uh, Some from London, and uh, it was... uh, it, It went very well. Anyway, Ron went over with Tim and came back, and he said, you've got to go over said nobody doing what you do I said oh I've 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 had enough I was there 20 years he said yes but you've never played New York and I said you're right I said well how how do we what do we do he said well we get a gig and have them come and see us and have them invite us and uh, I said oh Well, how do we do that? So he, um, it took him six months, but he used a lot of, because he'd played cocktail piano in a a lot of places in, in um, Los Angeles and New York. And, um, and at the beginning of Michael Feinstein's career, um, Michael Feinstein, who now runs 54. Below. Below. And, um, he got us a gig on 47th Street and there was a young guy, um, as I say, it took six months, and um, w- there was a young guy sat and, and took the took the tickets, the money and everything. He turned out to be Jim Caruso, who runs who runs a couple of uh, the, the rooms in New York all these years later. Anyway, um, we invited every Australian I knew and every American I knew and we invited the people from the New York Convention and they invited us to come the next year. Well, um, five weeks before we were due to come over, we, we were in this, we were upstairs in this block of flats yep. Ron and I were sharing and apart um, one night he went out and I'd, I'd gone to bed and I got up and I came out to go to the bathroom and he's sitting in sitting in front of the television it's about one o'clock in the morning and I said hi how, how was it and he didn't answer me and I come over and I walk over and there's the second plane going into the, the World, Trade, World Center. Trade Center and Ron is stunned and we we sat up for half the rest of the night figuring out we were supposed to leave in five weeks. We'd paid our fare. We were due to go over. What what do we do? And then then we then I said, well, they won't come back again. We'll we'll go. So we went over 
five weeks after the world trade, life-changing thing. And it was one of those things that we'd and we'd got a job we'd we'd got a job at 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 another we had to get a place to so that we could earn some money and um, I said I used to work for the war effort when I was a little girl with mum and dad I said um, this is the war effort I'm going to put more comedy in the act and people that came to see us said thank because because people weren't congregating for a, for a while after they were terrified it was all going to happen again but they came back and said thank you for making us laugh and taking our minds off it anyway um we were on we had our um it was it ran for a week it it opened on the monday night and ran through all every night through sunday um and we put you had seven minutes Included in that seven minutes was, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony Lamond, and please, this is my musical director, Mr Ronker. So there's half a minute gone of your seven minutes, so every every minute is precious. Well, we rehearsed for months and months, and we knew that a lot of them would be doing show tunes and things and they were famous for different things and for some reason or other we we chose a Johnny Mercer song called Skylark and um, Ron did a beautiful arrangement of it and he sang harmony with me it was just beautiful anyway we when we when we got there we found that we were going to be on on the Sunday night so I said, well, we'll go in on the, on the Monday and see what the competition is. The fourth person that comes on sings Skylar. Oh. The next night, the third person that came on sang Skylar. <laughs> After the third night, I said, they will yawn and walk out if we do this Sunday. What the hell are we going to do? Now, we were staying with some friends who were working for the Australian consulate who'd uh, invited us to stay with them. And this was the Wednesday night where we had till the Sunday to change Skylark into something else. What the hell are we going to do? So we, we chose... Um, something where I'd got a gig um, in Pasadena, uh, which is outside of Los Angeles. It's a sub- suburban place outside of Los Angeles. And somebody asked me to fill in for a night. And it wasn't to do my cabaret act. It was to sing requests. But I needed the money. And Ron had said, I've played cocktail piano in in uh, Hollywood and um, I put um, uh, a cognac a cognac thing on the piano and every time I play a request they tip me I said really he said yes he said some some nights I, I made two hundred dollars I said lead me to it so we get to the gig and we walk in and it's a gay bar and I went oh I won't know any of the because they all had the latest songs and everything and I'd never done a, a, a request show so uh, I said um, but I sang it we made eleven dollars oh. <laughs> So I said, but we've, we've learnt the songs that they requested now. And 
I'd like to sing them for you. Well, there was Michael Jackson and I clutched my crotch Crutch. and 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 did stuff. We did a medley. We got a standing ovation. Fantastic. It was totally... Now, if I'd gone on and done Skylark, they would have gone, oh, fair enough. But I did something totally... Oh, and when they introduced me, and I was on, like, about third last, oh, well, here she is, straight from Australia, Tony Lamont. This unknown walked on, and then and then we hit them with this routine we put together with the Michael Jackson and... And, and um, oh, we sent up we sent up a whole lot of things. We did a terrific, funny medley, and uh, we we got a start. So I've always trusted what what comes out of the blue, you know. If it was for a reason, we didn't do Skylark, you know. <laughs> now you've written two volumes of your autobiography: yeah. first half and, and still, still a gypsy, gypsy, which are well. Somebody mentioned. Why isn't it second half? I said, oh, no, it's not over. <laughs> um, and it isn't yet. How, how exacting is it to... Because you've had a, a life of incredible highs and, and very challenging lows. Oh, yes. How tough is it to sit down and, and tell your story like that? Is it, is it a painful experience? Is it a cathartic experience? It's cathartic. Yeah. It's cathartic. You get a lot of, you get a lot of stuff onto the thing and it's like going into what I imagine a psychiatric session is you you get it out and you face it and I I wrote a lot of the first one in the dressing room when I was when I was doing the shows you describe a, a horrific period of addiction and stays in oh, Chelmsford Hospital and yes. La Rundel. I mean what what leads to such a dark period such as that? And, and how did you extract yourself from Well, my husband committed suicide and I, I was supposed to... I changed my... I was supposed to find him. I didn't realise until later that, that he'd taken the pills because I was supposed to find him and, uh, and help him. But I, I changed... When you, when you, the company flew you, uh, they paid for the, the plane. Oh no, they, they, they paid for the, paid for the train. Um, and I was, I, I was in Sydney with, with, with a show. I can't think of what the show was I was with. Tony was with me. Was it he Oliver? Was 11. Oliver, that Oliver. was it. Um, J.C. Williamson's, they had me, they had me on the train, but I, I, you had to pay extra if you flew, and he thought I was flying back the night before, and I changed it because he, we had a row, and he walked out, and um, I, I still was going on with the tour, and I said, well, I'm going to have to save my money now, I'm, I'll, I'll, go by train and we were overnight and he took an overdose and his body was discovered. Well the guilt that I was left with was that and I started getting migraine headaches and at the time they were treating migraine headaches with pethidine injections and they didn't know then just how lethal pethidine, it's morphine. Hmm. And um, I became addicted 
to Pethidine and uh, it was a it was a terrible terrible time. Um, but I'm so lucky, and I was lucky that they they don't have it now, but um, that you could go into a psychiatric hospital and be there and be treated. They they don't have them anymore, and um, I don't know how people are recovering from addiction. It was it was eight long years of of hell I went through. And then rebuilding your life, rebuilding your career. Absolutely. Re-establishing relationships. Yes, yeah. all that. Um, how did you get the nickname Lolly Legs? Noel Ferrier was, um, he was one of the ones that took over from uh, the night that Graham Kennedy didn't want to do. And that was... That was when we started doing sketches and things. And he, he said one night, and and I was I was always going on showing showing the legs because I had good legs and I showed them on television in black mesh stockings. And one night he's introducing me and he said, "Oh, here comes Lolly Legs Lamond," uh, and it, and it stuck and. And it, I've been—I kept it on years later because, with my son Tony and his partner Tony Taylor and me Tony, um, if we stood um, together in a in a group and somebody walked up and said Tony, we'd get whiplash. So I I was Lolly, Sheldy's Tony Sheldon Sheldy and. Tony Taylor's TT so uh, the the lolly has has stuck but it was lolly legs and of course for years uh, Tony was Tony Lamont's son it must be good now being Tony Sheldon's mother Tony Sheldon's mother yes (laughs) (laughs) I love it you must be incredibly proud of what what he's doing now and burst I worry that the, the bursting sound you know the bursting sound you hear and the night I went to Broadway to see him and Jackie Weaver and I, Jackie Weaver was there and she and I walked the red carpet together and it was very funny because the, the press that was there, the, suddenly the cameras all got put down. Who the hell are these two? This is before Jackie did a couple of films over there and became known. Um, yes, to uh, and to be in the theatre that, Judy Garland had had done her show at the uh, Palace. Judy at the Palace, yeah. Um, and Tony was in dressing in the dressing room that Judy dressed in. Oh, it was it was all too much. It was it was incredible. Tony Lamont, um, this is another first today. You're the very first guest on stages. I'm absolutely thrilled um, having known you. And being such a, a special person in my life, um, I'm, I'm completely honoured. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for asking me. I'm privileged. <laughs> um, and uh, for, for being so frank always with your story and um, nurturing young talent and um, being such a... You know, I think you, you of all people, have earned the, uh, the term theatre royalty in, in Australia. Thank so, you. So, so thanks, Tony. <laughs> A 
At 85, Tony Lamond continues to stay active in a profession that has rewarded her with great highs and challenging lows. She continues to write, teach and pass on her sage advice. Her captivating life is told in the two instalments of her autobiography, First Half and Still a Gypsy. Find a copy, I urge you. It's a tale of an incredible life in an often erratic business.